Okay, so today I'm in the, the Star Sports Mayfair office with Lydia Hislop. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us, Lydia. Thanks, Simon. It's taken a while, but we got there. Yeah, it did. I'm sorry about that. Um, now, I'm going to go, I was told by this gentleman to go straight into something punchy. The late, great John McCurick described the current racing press to be a supine. Now, would you agree with that? Well, I'm hardly going to um, slag off my colleagues, even though uh, John McCurick did. Um, I would say that there are times when uh, issues could be pushed or discussed more than they are, that some people are more proactive than others, but that's only natural, isn't it, in a job where they have lots of different characters. And you can get lots of different things out of different people depending on how you are, whether you're you know, pushy, nudging, you know, goading them into an answer or really sort of asking them a difficult question or sort of cajoling them into it, you can often get more. So there's lots of different ways to skin a cat. I mean, I don't know, I think it was very easy for John to say that. I mean, I was a huge admirer of John, absolutely, particularly in his early days with his campaigning journalism. He did some fantastic things. He was also excellent um, on uh, at the start of Channel 4 Racing. But towards the end of his career, I would say there were people within the press room who were, who were challenged more than he did, to be perfectly honest. Um, and uh, maybe that's just the passing of time. Maybe, maybe that's that fatal um, awaits everybody. Uh, oh, I should I better know when to retire. It's probably my conclusion <laughs> for all of that. Well, one of those people, I think most people would agree with you, because you have a reputation for asking the questions that others won't. I mean, does that make your job unpleasant at times? Yes. And how do you feel about those? I know you don't want to say things about the, the members of the press, but how do you feel about those that won't ask the questions, leaving it for somebody like you to do the, the dirty work? Well, you are sometimes conscious that lots of people are sort of gathering around your interview and taking the quotes, having not asked the question. But I mean, that is partly just how the racing media works to, to some degree in terms of timing of access. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know any other way of doing this job, so it wouldn't really cross my mind to do it a different way. I mean, I, I, I think you have to ask questions, be curious, test the evidence, um, challenge, you know, where, where appropriate, fair, be fair about it and be balanced. But that, that to me is the job. So um, I, can't, I don't really look at other people and think, is there a different way? Because it, it wouldn't give me any job satisfaction to do it a different way. Okay, and when I was trawling the internet to do research for this, I was quite surprised to read that you said that, um, hopefully it's a correct quote, that confidence is sometimes an illusion on TV. Now, your confidence appears to be bulletproof. <laughs> oh, that is, I mean, it's, I mean, people who appear confident, I look at other people and think, wow, they're confident. And um, I think they look bulletproof. Well, it is partly illusion, isn't it? We all have a, have a front, even in our real lives, let alone when we're actually working on television, when we're um, a form of ourselves, we're not completely ourselves, we couldn't possibly be, it's a sort of professional TV form. So am I um, completely confident? No, I have to often force myself to be. And we'll, you know, there'll be good days and there'll be bad days. You know, you'll wake up sometimes and you won't be feeling particularly confident, you won't be feeling particularly great. But, you know, it's the 2,000 guineas. Oh, it wasn't the 2,000 guineas, but, you know, for example, it's the 2,000 guineas that day. Um, 
And so you have to forget about that, don't you? You just have to do the job properly again. It's just back to doing the job properly. Yeah, and a lot of the racing stuff, obviously, by nature, is spontaneous. So you don't have the luxury of preparing your questions. Is that make obviously makes it a lot more difficult? Um, I like that. I like reacting to events. I mean, I my background is in print journalism, and so once I moved onto television, the immediacy of being able to ask a question and get an answer straight away was really appealing to me. So I actually quite like that. So I think if you know your subject, it's you can you can be ahead of it. You can you can. Um, you can push the storyline. You can you can move the news forward. You know be, because you know your subject, you can react instantly. Okay, and going away from that, that briefly, you're a trustee of the British Racing School. So what does that entail? Uh, well, on paper, it involves you meeting four times a year with your fellow trustees to talk about what the organisation, the charity, is is doing. I've got a particular responsibility for safeguarding and for diversity and inclusion and equality. Um, so uh, it's to do with meeting with the people who work at the British Racing School who are particularly responsible for trying to push forward those areas. Um, it's just making sure that the school can, it can be as good as it can be in terms of taking young people and making them uh, employable in the racing industry. They're guaranteed a, a job at the end of the foundation course and we take people who have never sat on a horse before. So um, to do that, to get from there um, to um, being able to be an employee within 14 weeks is, is quite a feat um, and I don't think that should be underestimated. Uh, you know, there are, you can then go back to the British Race School and improve your um, learning in lots of different areas after that, that foundation course. But it's a great place to be. I think I find it really rewarding and I've been a trustee there for longer than I care to remember. <laughs> okay, I read that you've helped jockeys to communicate. So is that part of that role? Or is no, that it's that's slightly different. So... Um, I did a, 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 Paul Bitter, when he was the chief executive of the British Horse Racing Authority, asked me to do a benchmarking exercise on how other racing jurisdictions uh, develop their jockeys in all different ways, um, from um, being riders to, you know, across the whole of, of what would be required to be an athlete. Um, and so I compared it with uh, different countries around the world and also different sports in Britain. And that... Came out, I gave a report which formed the basis of the Jockey Training and Development Strategy, which is being pushed forward by the BHA, the British Racing School, the National Horse Racing College, Jets today. Um, and then out of that, um, there was a, a desire to give more enhanced media training. And so I see all jockeys at licensing and then also when they're five and three pound claimers. And it's just a case of it's kind of, it's, everyone's an individual and you find these days because everyone's got a phone, you know, they're used to generally performing in front of camera much more so. They're much more comfortable than they were when I first started doing this in front of camera as a general rule. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of things that you have to get them to consider, such as the impact of their words, how they're coming across, things that they could improve. But you want to do that without squashing the individuality out of them. I'm not a fan of overly media trained sports people i think when you're watching it at home you can tell that you can see it you don't feel you're making any kind of connection with the individual i don't think that's good in the long run so i encourage young riders to um as much as they can express themselves in their own words and also words appropriate to their generation because um there's kind of like a uh, a perceived vo correct vocabulary in horse racing and I don't think that's healthy for the long-term future of the sport. I think if we're going to be attracting 
young people, the young people within this sport should speak like young people and not people two or three generations older. Okay, now there have been issues, including with you um, trying to interview jockeys post-race and that some of them not been too keen. Do you think they're duty-bound to talk to the media or, or should we accept that they're sportsmen first and foremost and they can choose? I think they do have a duty to communicate to the media. It's not the media. We're, not, we're called the media for a reason. We're the mediums between them, the participants, and they, the sports fans. So uh, bearing in mind how much fans contribute to the actual fabric of the sport in terms of keeping it financially on its feet and keeping it relevant and keep giving it its societal contract, making sure that it's a, it's a popular sport and that the whole everyone's income is being driven. Yeah, I do think they have got a responsibility to, to speak to the media who are uh, conveying their, um, their words to the wider public. Now, some people will say, well, they can do that directly, but um, I, I think that you're only getting a, you're getting a product that way. If you introduce a, a third person, the media, you, you get that element of challenge or um, inquisitiveness that you might not get if you are an individual or an entity trying to communicate directly with your audience. I think you get, as an audience, you might get a very, you risk getting a very sanitised, cleaned up, uh, subjective, pro, subjective information. Whereas if there is somebody who's actually testing that information en route to you, then I think you get a more rounded picture. So yeah, I do think there is a responsibility of, of participants. I wouldn't want it to be written into the race conditions or anything like that, because then again, I think you risk people turning up and going through the motions. And not everybody. If you have a look at other sports where it is in the contract where they have to speak, um, no matter what's happened, whether they've won or lost. Yeah. Um, and some, some of them are very, very good about that. Um, you see others that are going through the motions, don't you, and just answering by rose. I don't think you'd want to do that. I think increasingly, I think increasingly people in racing actually do want to engage. I think more and more young jockeys actually actively do want to and do try. And even when things have gone against them, I've been pleasantly surprised recently how many um, people who have lost in a race have been prepared to communicate because winning is only one aspect of a race. Just because you haven't won doesn't necessarily mean that you have done something wrong, does it? More often than not, it absolutely doesn't. Um, so in order for the people, fans, to watch the sport, I think people who have, whatever's happened to you in the race, I think is relevant to someone who is wholly interested in horse racing. Okay, no, not, not just thinking of jockeys. I suppose it's easier to speak to the winners and the losers in that, in that, sort, of, in that sort of thing, but um, not just thinking of jockeys. You've interviewed hundreds of people, maybe thousands. I mean, what is the worst nightmare when conducting those interviews, apart when, from something that don't speak, of course? When people aren't engaging properly. When, when, you, when you know that you're kind of... Um, you're you're kind of engaging with a hologram, and uh, no matter what you do, you can't seem to get round or past it. Um, I like people being real and trying to make a proper engagement and trying to communicate. I don't see the point otherwise. So um, those kind of overly manufactured fronts are the ones that I I find most difficult because they're quite difficult to to break through, to pierce through. Quite often it's through media training, a sort of defensive media training, um, otherwise, or it can be an instinct to say nothing. Th those are the most frustrating interviews because you don't get very far. Okay, now there's a, a fair bit of doom and gloom around racing at the minute with prize money, field sizes, five day Cheltenham festival, that sort of thing. Um, but in the 70s, nearly lost the Grand National. In the 80s, Wayward Lad won a free runner King George and Derby winners were retired on the spot. So is racing really on the brink now or has it always been a little bit 
on the edge? Um, I think the difference now is that there is international competition, whereas there wasn't to such a great extent then. So if you think about our best flat racing, that's not just in competition with Ireland and France, who at the moment have more money than Britain, um, are better funded their system. So already, um, even within Europe, uh, the two biggest competitors are um, providing quite a challenge. France have got a lot of money. Their racehorses aren't necessarily, generalisation, um, as deep, as good and deep as Britain's at the moment. Um, will that last? I, I, that's probably cyclical as well. But then if you move into the sort of wider world, there's all sorts of countries around the world, this is flat racing, who've got far more money to throw at races to tempt the best horses to go there rather than where they might traditionally have gone, which would generally have been primarily Britain. And so whilst at the moment Britain's black type, you know, the, what you get for finishing in the first four in pattern races and listed races in Britain, is still a kite mark of quality, more usually speaking. Um, it's that relies on all the good horses turning up, and once a few of those horses start going elsewhere, it becomes quite a slippery slope. So at the, t at the highest level, I do think it's that Britain has a a challenge that it won't have been facing in the same way in the in the seventies, um, and I think there is an issue, there is a supply issue in terms of stayers as well um, which I think might feed into jumps racing I, I think that Britain and Ireland I would prefer Britain and Ireland from a jumps perspective got together and did an Anglo-Irish pattern um, because they're the same horses competing against each other out of a very small pool um, and I think there is a lot more for a sports fan or someone with some leisure money to spend to go and do something else now other than watch racing so I think it's more it's more beholden on horse racing to have a competitive and compelling internationally globally relevant product um, in order to retain people's interests retain the money that comes through retain terrestrial tv rights all of those things that maintain British horse racing's position within society, within the country, at the level that it is, and therefore maintains it at the scale uh, that it is and enables it still at this stage to play at the top table internationally. I, I do think that that's a, a really different context to the 1970s and 1980s. So yeah, I do think it's a bigger challenge. Okay, Lydia, at the end of the last part, you did mention the pattern. I mean, you you work, you still work for the British um, Flat Pattern Committee. And the can chair, you, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of, um, just tell us about it, really? Okay, so um, our job is to um, ensure that the British pattern is functioning as well as it possibly can, so that it is providing races of the right kind of tests, whether that be relevant to distance or age or you know for for horses to develop to be their athletic best um, and we have to operate within the European Patent Committee so there are agreements with the rest of Europe involving which are sensible agreements and really help Britain actually because it ensures that similar races do not clash with each other which means that um, you know without a pattern without those international agreements you could have a really important race in Britain 
which another country could just park their very good race on top of and potentially and likely in the current environment be more worth more money and it's it's better for europe as a collective entity to work together particularly with the international pressures that i've already described around the world because it can enable us to be the best have the best collective product that we can but the the key point is to be able to find a way to develop horses um, to be the best that they can or to be able to express what ability they do have if they can't get to the top level at a at the group two or group three or listed um, so that we are able to learn and test the horses and uh, bring about the best horses to go then into into breeding it's for the betterment of the sport it's for the betterment of the breed and one of the key things that we say is that the members of the pattern committee are chosen for their love of the sport and um, for their understanding of the you know the complicated issues at play the interplays um, and it means that they have to leave whatever partisan attachments that they might have at the door so you know they might be a trainer they might be represent a race course they might they might be a breeder whatever those subjective interests have to be left at the door because this is for the betterment of British racing, the greater good of British racing, and it can't people can't approach it in a subjective way. That means that I mean, obviously, inevitably, if you have expertise in this industry, you end up having ties. That's just inevitable. So then, that's just a case of managing those conflicts in terms of declaring them, stepping out, um, not voting. Or, or declaring them during the course of a conversation, depending on what level of conflict might might exist. So that relies on the probity of the committee, the probity of the chair, um, and uh, also of Ruth Quinn, who's um, the BHA's director of international racing. Um, so she and I together um, uh, sort of uh, lead the committee. We meet three or four times a year. Go to the pa European. I go to the European Patent Committee with Ruth twice a year. Um, and it's really interesting. And I, I find it really interesting. Um, and I think, again, we're, we're into a sort of challenging situation, I think, whereby Britain at the moment doesn't have enough money, um, seems to have an undersupply of horses at certain levels. And that might require um, us having a look at the pattern and seeing whether it's still in its current form, exact pattern fits our horse population properly or whether it needs some strategic looking at. Um, that's work that we will be doing um, in consultation with stakeholders. Okay, and this is one part of race planning that's purely about the fervent of the breed rather than betting, which is unusual. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It, it's, not, it's not interested in, I mean, it wants competitive racing, mm. so therefore, you know, I, the betting public are not disadvantaged by anything the pattern is doing, they're advantaged by it. We, the whole point is to get clashes of athletes you know, competitive horse racing happening so whilst betting is not is not on our minds and shouldn't be on our minds and nothing other than than that is on our minds it, it is purely the development of the horse that is on our minds and that's how the pattern should be it should be operating i believe separately from all the political considerations that that, that are quite rightly elsewhere in the sport because this has to be something slightly apart now, what you've just talked about is the, the more complex side of, of the sport that people probably, you know, find it hard to fathom still. But the, a lot of people think that you should really dumb down the racing so that people that aren't interested, and possibly never will be interested, might be attracted. Um, but these people probably won't get involved anyway. Do you think 
that's a good idea or a bad idea or should the mystique of it being a bit complicated be the selling point? I think you have to adapt your the way you speak to your audience. So it is right that a terrestrial audience in this era, ITV, previously um, Channel 4 and BBC, it is right, I think, that the people who work in that area um, adjust their language to so that a, a general sports audience can understand it. Um, in racing, we've got a, a lot of terms that are not just... Um, they're just hard to understand sometimes. And I think that it's helpful to be able to gloss it for a general sports viewer. That's without losing the mystique or without dumbing down. It's possible to communicate complicated concepts and complicated matters. And horse racing should, I think, glory in its complicatedness because that's half of the draw, I think, or most of the draw even for, for many people. Many people who are into horse racing um, have never gotten a horse, um, would certainly not, not get on a horse at speed or over obstacles. Part of the fun for them is working out who's going to win a race and that requires taking on board a huge level of complexity of all the different elements that might impact on the outcome of a race and that's, I, that's what I find really interesting. It's like, a, I've said this before, but it's like a cryptic crossword puzzle and you, you know each race is a, is a separate cryptic crossword puzzle and there are you know, loads of them every day which is fantastic. Um, I, I like them to be quite difficult, so hence, you know, I would like bigger field sizes and, you know, more com competitiveness, but that's another issue. So, I, I, you know, I do think there's complexity in horse racing. I do think we should be proud of that. It's part of the sell. It's why people get interested. It's why people get hooked for life on horse racing, I think. I do think it is possible to communicate that complexity in a way that is more easily understood. Um, increasingly people w would say that data would help and that's, that, I absolutely agree with that, but I also think language does help too. Okay, and if you were solely responsible for the coverage of this sport, what would it look like? Mm. I think, I think I'd give more time to the big events. I wouldn't want any race clashes. Um, I just would want them completely eradicated from from our timetable. I they they don't help the levy. They don't help the punter. They don't help anyone. Um, so I would have make would make sure that race clashes just did not happen, and that would probably involve a um, a reduction in the fixture list to some degree. And I I acknowledge that that would be there would probably be some short-term pain to that but I think it would be to the long-term benefit of British racing um, but that would have to be done strategically and not just in a sort of piecemeal way and um, so yeah I would give I would give more time uh, eradicate race clashes I would definitely give more time before and after our biggest races I'd make sure that uh, there is a differentiation between our best races and our other races so that people at home understand when a race is important and why it's important and I think that needs space and time around it for it to be absorbed. Um, I do think there's still a need for, as I said, a sports fan's way of communicating and a racing fan's way of communicating. You know, some aspects of a terrestrial, of a terrestrial coverage will be too slow sometimes for a really, you know, died-in-the-wall racing fan. 
you know, fair enough. You know, there are other avenues that you can watch. You can watch Sky Sports Racing. You can watch Racing TV. You know, there are there are other ways in which you can consume um, th that sport, and I think that's right. So I still think that, that I would have that, um, and I, I would I would have the the facility to be able to watch an afternoon's racing and not have to channel hop all the time and worry whether you're switching backwards and forwards. I mean, I, I'm a racing fan, I watch racing from home, you know, it's just not satisfactory is that you end up recording the whole of one, cha one <laughs> channel and then uh, watching it back later. Now, you've written about animal welfare and racing is very conscious of the animal welfare situation. I mean, most you know, people are horse lovers. But do you think there's a section of society that will keep on protesting in a drip-drip manner until there's no racing? So there comes a point we've got to say, look, there's going to be risks. We've gone far enough. Um, I think there's, I think there's a lot in that question. So I think that there is, there is a section of society who believes that animals should not be utilised in any way for human benefit. So whether that be eating them, wearing um, their skin, um, racing them, um, anything like that, farming them, whatever. Um, there are some people who think that we that humans shouldn't have pets. So, yes, there are always going to be those people in society. What horse racing needs to be, um, when horse racing needs to be positioned, is, to where, is where general society is and where their morality is. And that is an evolving, moving uh, thing. You know, if we think about all sorts of issues like, uh, you know, sexuality, um, you know, there are so many different things where society has moved a great deal over the decades and horse racing can't be immune to that. I know it's tempting to say, well, this is what we are and the rest of you can, can stuff off. But there is a, a social contract between the sport and society, British society. And without that, without the acceptance and, and the understanding of wider society, well, then the sport will dwindle and it won't function and it won't be able to carry on in, in a bubble. Um, that just won't be able to happen. I also think it's wrong to suggest that the sport should say we've gone far enough in terms of welfare improvements because I think it's evident that there are always improvements to be made. Uh, if you think about the Grand National, some of the modifications that have been made. Now, some of them with the most recent renewal where there were two fatalities um, have been called into question. I think it's right that it should be reviewed. But, you know, there are there has been progress being made in lots of different ways. I mean, the white, painting the, 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 the fences and the hurdles white, so that, you know, doing a scientific study to be able to see, find out that horses can actually see that colour better than the existing orange. There are, there are lots of things that can be done. There's going to be no massive step change in horse racing um, that will that will eradicate I mean it's impossible to eradicate fatalities in, in, in racing in any kind of activity that involves a live animal I think um, there's going to be no huge step change in reducing it but there are little improvements I think that can be made all the time and I think horse racing should do that I think that's the socially responsible thing to do and I think it shows that it is a sport that is considering that element and doing its best and investing and looking towards that. But, you know, there, there obviously will be a small element who are just against, opposed to horse racing and you're never going to win them round. Horse racing is talking to the people in the middle who 
uh, will who are receptive to um, reasoned and evidenced arguments. The key to that, obviously, is being honest and truthful. So that that has to be. I mean, horse racing. I get frustrated when horse racing feels that it's best not to mention that or best not to look at that or you know because you know it's it, the implication being it's not very good over there well if it's not very good over there do something about it because you can't pretend it's not there um so there are loads and loads of issues that i think need to be addressed including overproduction at the start of a horse's career you know w w how many horses are being encouraged to be bred particularly at the at the bottom end um you know w when they might not make race horses and then what happens to them once they finish their racing career and what is the right thing to do. Those are two huge areas that really do need addressing still. Massive improvements have certainly been made at the retraining, rehabilitation end. There's no doubt about that. Um, the sport has improved traceability from, from birth and afterwards, but there are still massive improvements that need to be made in all of those key areas. Okay, Lydia, so in a similar vein, to the an animal rights and uh, welfare lobby. Gambling has become a very dirty word in recent years in non-racing media and possibly in the public perception. Um, in much the same way as people won't give up until racing's banned, there's obviously going to be a lot of people that are vehemently against gambling. I mean, once again, the same question. Is there a point where we say, right, this is acceptable? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I obviously think gambling is acceptable. I mean, look, look where I am. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, and I bet myself, um, but I mean, we should not be in any doubt that the reason that we're in this situation is because bookmakers have behaved reprehensibly towards people who have a gambling addiction. And that is proven to be, it's, that's been evidenced by various um, press reports and various investigations. And that's why we're here. So that should be forgotten as, as the starting point, I think. Um, so then we get to, okay, so we have people who, are, who could be addicted to gambling. And by the way, I really hate the, t the phrase problem, ga problem gambler because that pushes the problem onto the individual. Whereas we all know that one, in certain cases, they have been actively targeted and th that, is a, that is proved. Um, and otherwise, there was also um, the form of gaming is quite often addictive. So, you know, speed of replay, lack of time for reflection, all of those things, the kind of things that social media websites have, have keyed into to try and keep people on site, the same kind of technology is used to keep people gambling. So, you know, it's not just the individual who has a problem. Um, but many people gamble um, responsibly, happily, without it impacting in any way on their lives. You know, okay, maybe sometimes they might have a, have a bad day and end up having a row with their husband or wife. Um, but, you know, but, you know, generally, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't bother them. They're certainly not losing their house. Then it's not causing them any kind of hardship. And actually it's something that they actively enjoy and it's their money. Why shouldn't they pay, pay, play, play with it in any way that they wish to, which is obviously a, a view that I would defend. The thing that worries me about the gambling review is that we're going to end up with the worst of all worlds, whereby people with a gambling compulsion are not protected adequately, whereby there isn't a, an overview of the whole industry. It's done individually via individual betting company and probably not consistently. 
um, and it might allow somebody to slip through the net here or there, you know, not bet there, but still be able to bet there in the way that it currently is. So that concerns me. But at the same time, then for the more recreational gambler, the person who or the person who just doesn't have a problem, they've been given a series of hurdles that they're going to have to jump over in order to just spend their own money. And that to me seems wrong. I mean, that's it. To me. I worry that that is going to be wholly disproportionate and people who you know, want to be able to spend their money, people like me who want to have a bet, are going to find it just so difficult to, to, to get that bet on that uh, we'll just sort of think, well, why don't we go and do something else? Um, and at the same time, I would like horse racing to take some responsibility, and this is particularly for horse racing, I think. Too often I've seen um, race courses and also participants link up with bookmakers without doing any kind of, as far as I can see, I would bet any sort of due diligence in the way that I mean in terms of uh, what, how do you, you, you treat your customers? What, 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 what happens if you do suspect that you have a compulsive gambler? Um, but more particularly for horse racing customers, um, what's your record on restrictions? Um, you know, how... How easily can people get their fans of horse racing get their money on, um, you know, and just uh, do they get caught up in one of your algor algorithms, which um, means that somebody who um, I don't know is is retired has decided to use their their time to get really good at um, racing, have spent quite a lot of time at it, and want to spend fifty quid on a Saturday, and are actually finding themselves when they want ten quid each way, they're restricted to eighteen pence each way. Um, you know, though I would, I think horse racing has a responsibility to its fans that, who largely fund its sport. I mean, it's self, it's self-help in many ways to make sure that those fans um, can actively engage with those bookmakers with whom they make commercial partnerships. Okay, now it's interesting you say you like betting. You've admitted that, which is good. But I've read, I heard a wonderful interview where you talked about skiving off school to go to Cheltenham on the Wednesday and betting from the age of seven, those social services would be called in these days, wouldn't they? <laughs> they probably would, they probably would, yeah. I mean, it was only 10 pences that I was having at the age of seven, and it was because um, I used to love watching horse racing with my granddad, and he would, um, he would uh, have, a, have a bet every, every Saturday. Um, we used to go, I mean, we lived in Wolverhampton, so initially we used to go down the Stafford Road to F.A. Brooks. I'm told that famously he used to park my pram outside F.A. Brooks, and it would sit there all afternoon. <laughs> uh, but as I got there, as I got a bit older, I would venture into FA Brooks, um, and then we moved. Um, they moved to Wensfield, and so uh, we went to McDurkin Shop in Wensfield as well. So, um, and my granddad would walk out there. He would be famous for going out saying, "Right, I'm going to back. I'm going to back X." Um, the famous one was um, Sharastani. He went out to back Sharastani, and. Uh, Aristotle won, and he came back, and uh, we were all kind of like, oh, yeah, well done, grandfather. He's kind of like, I didn't back it. Just sort of, why? And the story always was that the person in front of him had backed the same horse that he was going to back. So the person in front of him who backed Sharastani was the one that put my granddad off, off him. Anyway, so I used to spend a load of time with him and uh, fun at the weekends, fun on Saturday for him and his wife, my granddad, uh, would be to have um, three. Uh, sort of cross doubles and a treble, ten pences um, across the card, um, and then I'd go to Mama Green Dogs in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> and it, create, it created a racing fan, though, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I mean, you, 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 anyone that's seen you prior to racing, you know, you always got your head down working hours before the first race. I mean, 
is that a, a labour of love or do you need to cram all that information in? It's just how I am. I think, um, I, you know, I, 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 probably, I probably have that information, but it's a ritual. Um, it was how I approached exams. You know, you, you, you just, you go over things to make sure they're, it's kind of like a safety blanket as well. You've got, you've got them written down just in case you do have a blank, which, you know, very occasionally you do, as you do in real life. Um, but yeah, it's, I think everybody prepares in their own way. And over a while, you fall into a routine of how you do it. That just happens to be how I do it. Does it make? Do you tend to bet more when you've done all that work? No, um, I find the two things are totally different. Um, I um, I have notes on horses that uh, take me to bet on them in a particular set of circumstances. Uh, preparing for a, a day's horse racing is, you know, you've got to prepare it from every horse's point of view, not just the horse that you fancy, because you're not broadcasting for you, you're broadcasting for everyone at home. And whilst you might fancy horse number three, uh, other people will fancy all the, you know, one of the other horses in, in the field. So you've got to be able to see it from all perspectives, haven't you? Um, so they are, I, I find, although there's obviously some overlap, they're entirely different. Okay, now you've already ascertained that you were betting from a very early age. <laughs> um, how serious do you take your betting these days? Um, I um, I bet a lot in sort of small frittering amounts. I wasn't bad at it, but I was, certainly wasn't good at it. Um, and um, I was at, I suppose it would have been race, would it have been Racing UK or would it have been the original at the races? One of the two. Um, I think it was Racing UK. Um, and... I had fancy this horse for the international handicap and ended up just not winning enough on it. Um, this, this was a conversation I had with Steve Mellish actually. Um, I know you're going to ask me about that. So, um, and he was kind of in despair at how little I'd managed to win on this sort of strong opinion. And it was his observation that um, that kind of thing happened quite a lot. And he was right. So, um, he kind of offered a suggestion as to how to structure my betting. It was execution that was the problem, not the opinion. Um, and um, so I did that quite seriously for a while, which involved quite l upping my stakes quite a large amount, um, which was quite scary. But it meant that it meant that every bet was a decision rather than something that you could not really decide and allow to suddenly fritter away virtually the same amount without thinking each each bet was a proper decision and you had a certain framework within which to do it so you removed unnecessary decision making and I did that very seriously for about 12 or 14 years I did it right up until uh, my mother died in uh, March 2020 where she got ill in January 2020 and then um, obviously immediately after she didn't die of Covid um, immediately after she died um, was uh, the Covid and shutdown of horse racing from you know late March to June and for some reason, I can't really explain why, I haven't really taken up betting seriously again since then. Now, I'm not, that's not to say that I won't, but I just, I just haven't. And, you know, it's a lot of work, as anyone who does it seriously knows. And so it's quite antisocial. And so, you know, I do a lot of work anyway, for my actual work, to then sort of do betting work. I don't know, see it perhaps it's a bit selfish did I need a break from it um, I'm probably doing a bit more written journalism than I was then I never really have a plan about about what what I'm doing things just happen in the way that the betting just happened um, so yeah I mean I could well go back to it but at the moment I'm not betting in the same volume 
anywhere near the same volume as I was at those sort of 12 to 14 years. So, so were you doing it to seriously supplement your income or was it all just like a climax of all the hard work? Bit of both, facts? really, bit of both because uh, work was, um, you know, I didn't at, at one point, I, I'm freelance and have been since I was 22. Um, and I, work wasn't, work, work looked a bit shaky to me, and so the, some elements of it, not the things that people see, um, but, you know, the whole sort of portfolio of it, and it did cross my mind that that would be useful, and it was useful, I mean, we got, <laughs> we got a new bathroom and a new kitchen out of it, we, 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 we did the back flat roof, we painted the front of the house, so, you know, it wasn't quite a useful supplement of in, uh, income with the, the betting. Um, but I also, I mean, mainly betting is, for me, is a sort of um, proof that you know what you're doing. And would you be to the sort of, you know, I speak to quite a few professional punters, they price up a race and then they work on value. So would you be, have the ability to no, price No, I mean, I could, I could price up a race. I wouldn't say I'd be, do, be able to, I could physically do it, but mm. I wouldn't be much good at it. And I don't think I'd be uh, nuanced in that kind of way. No, I, I, as I said, I do it a different way. I start with the opinion on the horse what kind of race the horse should be running in and I again I'm this is partly the the framework that I was talking about um and if I can back it I mean this will be I mean there'll be people you know you have many professional um gamblers you know watching this and they'll be screaming about how awful this this method is but you know it works for me and I I one thing that I do know having spoken to loads of professional gamblers over the years is that there is no one way of doing it Lots of people do it in different ways. It's whatever works for them. It's not always just pure maths. Sometimes it's to do with confidence as well and how you go about things. Certainly for me at the start, it was to do with confidence because I didn't think I could do it. So um, if, if, the, if, I can, if I can back the horse each way and get my money back if it plays, I'll back it each way. If I can't, if I can't back it um, each way and get my money back, then it's a win-only bet and I won't back shorter than two to one. And I know that's anathema to loads of people who'll be watching, but that's how I do it and it works for me and I'd be very respectful about what works for other people. And was, you mentioned Steve sort of talked to you about betting and stuff. Was there anything specifically that he taught you that you didn't know that you then adopted? No, as I say, it's only execution. It wasn't to do with finding the opinion. Okay, so staking. Yeah. Yeah. And how, and and the things to what noise to ignore. Okay, and would would you be a player? You know, when you were playing seriously on the exchanges, would you lay them? No, not at all. Never laid a horse. Well, I've I've, I've once wrote an article about when exchanges first came out about laying, and that cured me of laying straight away because you know, I just wasn't very good at it. It's just it's not for me. It's that it's, that's I don't think like that. So therefore, it would be a stretch for me to execute a bet like that. So I'm not, and, and whenever I'm asked to come up with a lay, as you often are for, you know, X event, Y event, I'm terrible at that. Absolutely awful. Is it adverse to negativity? I just, I just don't, it just doesn't, I don't think that way. So I'm forcing myself to do something that I don't naturally, in a way that I don't naturally think. So not surprisingly, the output is poor. <laughs> are there any, any types of races you'd not, not even consider getting involved in? I mean, by accident, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't normally get involved with sellers and claimers, which isn't to say I wouldn't particularly count out. But again, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a horse and deciding what I think a horse wants. I mean, necessarily, they tend to be three-year-old and up. I mean, they don't tend to have very many two-year-old bets. This, I mean, this is when I used to do it. I mean, um, 
uh, and I'd look at three-year-old and upwards handicaps generally and uh, mostly I'd, I'd specialise at 10 furlongs upwards. Okay, you mentioned um, previously that you sort of your betting sort of ceased when your, your mum sadly passed away. I don't mind me bringing the subject of your mum up again, but um, you're on record as saying that her death hit you hard. And do you feel that employers and welfare departments give enough credit to people, you know, sympath sympathetic enough when they're grieving as opposed to being ill? Or um, I mean, I, nobody was unsupportive to me but I mean I, I'm freelance as well though so it's sort of slightly different you're you're fending for yourself with everything with, with a freelance so I suppose I didn't expect anything active it was also a weird point for it to happen because obviously Covid was happening um, so it probably isn't my experience probably isn't necessarily the best example perhaps I don't know um, I found that people were sympathetic. My problems were more to do with, I suppose, this, this is probably when I made these comments about confidence. So I, it, it, it seemed to attack my confidence in some kind of way. And that made it much more difficult, challenging to present television. Um, I certainly found it to be so. Um, and it's very difficult to show weakness in that environment because because the, because confidence is about coming across well and the viewer enjoying it. If the viewer feels that the presenter is tentative or whatever, it's it's a lot less in, enjoyable for them. So it's partly not getting the job done properly. Um, it's also not getting the best out of the subjects around you, or not testing a issue in the way that you should or would usually have tested it and it's a very competitive environment so you know there is a fear and I think this might be what your question is getting at I think there is a fear that people have that if they are resting with a problem like this that if they mention it or talk about it that people will say that they're not up to the job and I think that that fear still exists whether or not it's legitimate and um, in some cases it, it, that exists for a reason um, television is cutthroat uh, no lots of industries are um, and you have to keep being as good as you can okay on a lighter note your written work tell us a bit about tour choices so Tortoise Media, yeah, um, this was uh, a venture one of the, put together by James Harding, who was the editor of The Times. I used to write for The Times um, on their, in their racing pages. Um, and in particular, I used to work with a, the sports editor, Keith Blackmore. And uh, Keith uh, is working for James um, in Tortoise Media. And he asked me, would I like to, to write for them? So they produce quarterly magazines. They're sort of like little books, actually. Um, and they have a, an online presence. They also have this thing called Thinkins, where they take a subject and they have their members, because it's a sort of membership organisation, um, which does obviously risk being conceived to be or, or actually elitist. That's the problem with it, isn't it? And um, that you might just talk into, to the converted. But I suppose that's a problem that lots of channels, lots of media face at the moment, isn't it? In that 
you know, you can choose where you get your news. So maybe a subscription version isn't that different. Anyway, um, so Tortoise Media um, has these have these um, sessions called Thinkins where they take a subject and they get three experts to talk about it and they have experts in the audience and also their members and they discuss a, a subject to sort of take the whole kind of idea and thoughts forward. They're quite, it's quite interesting. It's very interesting. I enjoy working for them. So I have written about my love of horse racing. I wrote a piece about why I love horse racing. And then I was obviously writing for people who had the whole, it's not even just a sporting audience tortoise. They're kind of like the whole thing. So um, that includes people who may be without thought, reflexively, hate racing without ever really sort of thinking why they might hate racing so you're talking to a whole load of different people now obviously clearly they might not actually they might go oh, horse racing I'm not reading that but the key is to try and speak to people who wouldn't normally read about horse racing so I've written about uh, why I love horse racing I've written about um, welfare um, and uh, you know injuries fatalities improvements the whole kind of conversation around that um, I've written about the um, Robbie Dunn, Bryony Frost uh, case. I have written about Rachel Blackmore um, and I've got a couple of projects ongoing at the moment for them as well. So yeah, I, I really enjoy it because I'm kind of connecting to a different audience and that is, you know, that's a skill, isn't it? You have to, you know, connect with different people at different times. So I mean, you know, Racing TV, we have our members, they're incredibly knowledgeable. So, you know, you're, you're talking to them, you know, at, at the, the sort of, this level because you know they know at least as much as you do so you have to have huge respect for them I'm, not, I'm of the view that you should always have huge respect for your audience I that's part of the thing that bothers me about the dumbing down idea of things because I just don't think that's respectful to the people that you're talking to and I think that's wrong um but anyway so then there's sporting life audience which is a more of a sporting audience and I write for them as well and then you've got a tortoise audience who are who could just be as I said anybody <laughs> including people who don't like racing well, the people that do like racing, you keep them busy with the roads to Cheltenham, Aintree and uh, Punchestown. Now, longest question, but do you think the road starts too early and is there a danger that it will eventually find the destination is underwhelming, diluted and prol proliferated with odds-on shots? Well, I think there is a risk of that. I mean, if we take, uh, take the Cheltenham National Hunt Race Programme as separate from Road to Cheltenham, the series, I'll, I'll come back to that. So if you take the, the programme in itself, yeah, I do think that um, jumps racing has, has an issue in terms of its graded races, particularly at, at grade two level, and um, providing stimulating competitive uh, races uh, after Cheltenham's November meeting uh, around either side of Christmas up until Cheltenham. In Cheltenham, increasingly, you've got the opportunity to dodge a key rival by running in a, a race that's only slightly different to before. I mean, if you think about the differential between the key races in the three-day festival as compared to a four-day festival, they were much larger. They pushed funneled horses together um, more so than they do at Cheltenham. I'm not suggesting that it's in any way likely that we'll go back to a three-day festival because clearly that ship has sailed. Um, but I don't think we should be going towards a five-day festival, even if that involves in the short term just two extra races. Um, I, d I think there needs to be a, I think the, the rest of the season needs to be looked at. I was part of a group that did do that with trying to get some recommendations through. I don't know where that is at the moment. 
But I, as I said earlier in this interview, I think it, there should be an Anglo-Irish jumps pattern because it's the same pool of horses, it's a small pool of horses, and I think we should be encouraging greater competition throughout the course of the season and not just at the Cheltenham Festival or Aintree or Punchestown. And certainly that is something that Ireland do better than us. They have a tighter uh, horse population, a tighter fixture list. Uh, they also have, at the moment, in terms of strength and depth of their jumps horses, better horses. Do I think the road towards Cheltenham, do I think talking about Cheltenham happens too soon? This has kind of been like the media talking about Cheltenham. As I said, the media is a, is a reflection, usually. I mean, we, we can be directional sometimes, we can campaign and all those kind of things. But in terms of, of Cheltenham, Cheltenham didn't, wasn't a media construct. That was a result of uh, owners, trainers saying, you know, after some horses went a two bar five furlong novice in October at Warwick, oh, we hope this is a Cheltenham horse. That's what that's born of. It wasn't, we, we didn't, we, the media didn't, didn't create that. that. That's where that started. And yes, then it, it can become reflexive and lazy. I take, I take that point and maybe there is some blame for the, for the, for the media there. But um, the, the focus on Cheltenham began with the industry and was just reflected outwards. And that was tremendously successful. I mean, people want to go to the Cheltenham Festival. You can see that, that they're crammed in there. That's why Cheltenham want to make it five days. They mm. think that they can make it commercially successful, and I'm sure they would do for five days. Whether it would be good for the sport, I very, very, very much doubt. I think it would, um, it would reduce the meaning of the Cheltenham Festival a great deal. Um, it's meant to be the pinnacle of the jump season and it's it's flirting with not being that um if it moves to five days and six races per day shortchanging the public who spend a lot of money to get to cheltenham to get into cheltenham to on food and drink when they're at cheltenham you know i and uh, to give them only six races for all that i just don't think that would that would be right um and you're to, to have seven races per day you're diluting the the product so it's a lose-lose as far as I can see apart from in the pure commercial sense and you know you have to be able to differentiate between the short term and the long term I think that that is personally short-termism um so does it start too early inevitably people start talking about Cheltenham at a very early stage about with their various horses uh in terms of road to Cheltenham's show we make a point of talking about, I mean, we, we talk about whatever racing has happened that week. So we're not just talking about the Cheltenham Festival. We are talking about how some horses might head towards the Cheltenham Festival. But we're also talking to about how some horses might head, head towards Kempton at Christmas or Leopardstown at Christmas or Limerick at Christmas or uh, Leopardstown in February. It's not just, or if, you, if people who watch the show will be aware that we're not just talking about Cheltenham. We're talking about all the different stopping points along the way. Um, you know, the, the Ascot Chase. You know, there are lots of diff different thing things. The Tingle Creek. You know, there are many, many different races along the way that we are talking about that horse that's just run going to next and whether or not it will suit them. And eventually, obviously, it does end up at Cheltenham. But that's the progress of the season. And then there's Aintree and then there's Punchestown and hence they have their individual shows as well. The Aintree one being quite different because obviously it focuses primarily on the Grand National. Um, I, I know it's called Road to Cheltenham. Um, I wrote a column for six years of that name and that was what we uh, transformed into the, the show. I wrote it originally for sportinglife.com. Um, and then that, that was sort of evolved into the show with, with Ruby Walsh. 
Um, it's got an identity that way. There is a road to Cheltenham. There's there's no no es escaping that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't turning off points along the way. And I think we do our best to talk about all of those. Right, Lydia, for the final part. Now, racing and gambling for most people are, are synonymous. But every now and again, racing or a, a, a a big figure in racing appears to try and distance themselves from betting but they don't seem to have a plan b um do you think that the former could survive without the latter no i don't at all i mean for many people i mean i, I, I do think this is to do, partly to do with snobbery about betting for many people as i said earlier having a bet on a horse is an expression of their understanding of horse racing that's what it is um their interest in horse racing they, you know they they don't ride they haven't got enough money to own a horse you know, they will will go racing, but that bet is an expression of their interest in the sport. And why yeah. would why would we be sneering about that? I, I I don't get it. And you know, I'm perfectly happy. It's I think racing can be a broad church. If you're interested in racing because you like following the development of of horse from a bloodstock um, perspective, and that's all you're interested in, welcome. <laughs> if you are if you are interested in betting on horses because you know that that shows your understanding of, of what a horse is and what horse racing is. Welcome. What is the problem? What, why can't we be catering for, for everybody? Um, a well-known trainer was saying to one of the racing TV producers recently that we concentrate too much on, on betting. I really don't think we do. I mean, it would be a disservice not to talk about betting because a lot of people who um, tune in and watch racing TV, and probably the majority of them, do want to know what's happening in the betting market. It doesn't mean they've had a bet in that race, loads of them would have done but you know they want to understand and it also that collective you know crowd knowledge thing that tells you something of, the market is telling you something as well which is also interesting if you want to you know open your mind to the to the to the wider ramifications of it so i find it frustrating that uh racing needs to be one thing or another it it doesn't have to be one of the whole points about racing is there are lots of different ways to get into it and I don't think we should be turning anyone away for uh, their particular way of being getting into horse racing. And, and just as an aside, one of the things that I heard recently was that it's obscene that they sort of highlight people having big bets on races when there's people at home that can't, you know, sort of follow their kettle or something. Yes. I mean, but surely the horse racing, by the very nature, so rich people are involved, the horses running around more than most people earn in 10 years possibly. So how do you feel about that? Should people be, should people be shielded from knowing that people, some people bet ten grand on a horse? I, I I don't think so. Um, at the same time, I don't really feel that people having that kind betting that kind of money should be glorified in any kind of way. I mean, it just is, you know. So you know, they have they have more money than other people. Any sort of flashiness involved to do with that, and any sort of glorification, I, I think is probably just daft anyway I mean it's just it's just it, it I don't know it, it, it doesn't it, I mean, you can probably tell it doesn't impress me much um <laughs> but you know it, it, I was thinking of a phrase it's often used on social media but I'm not <laughs> I mean to some people to some people a thousand pounds is what um ten pounds or a pound would be to other people you know you, we all have to accept that our money is is proportionate to our income isn't it so and I definitely understand that. I, I, I think it's a bit, people are too easily, or, or seem to wish to be offended these days about, about something. That said, 
you do have a lot of money at the moment. Um, I think you should be aware of how many people are struggling and are going to increasingly struggle to be able to fulfil their own basic needs. So, you know, I, I think that's a very complicated question. And I, I suppose I'd have to see the individual example that you were citing to decide whether or not I found that appropriate or not appropriate. But yeah, um, those, those are lots of different random thoughts in response to your question. <laughs> now, you started with print journalism. Yeah. And then, in inverted commas, progress to TV. Do you see that as a progression? No, not at all. No, it's there's just different forms of, of journalism. Um, I think in my head at the time, maybe there was a, a connection between uh, you know working for BBC Racing or Channel Four Racing and having achieved being successful. But then I had to very quickly realise that um, the, the other people. How, do, how should I put this? Well, I don't think I was ready for terrestrial television at the time that um, I was doing it. So I don't think I was competent enough. I think I wasn't competent enough. At the same time, I think it was a very exacting, cutthroat environment. Not not at all supportive. I was about to say not particularly supportive. Not at all supportive. Very difficult to uh, progress in um, if you felt that you were different if you were facing some challenges, um, which mm. I certainly was at the time, because I don't think I was, I think I was perceived as being a little bit different within the sport at that point. So that was challenging, I think. Um, but as it turned out, the way in which sort of terrestrial TV has developed, and this is nothing against it, as I've said already, I think it's right that it, adjust how it talks to its audience but I also came to understand that that wasn't really for me certainly in terms of television broadcasting um, I didn't I didn't find it satisfying to speak for 90 seconds about something um, and be wrapped up after second 59 um, I, I preferred lengthier deeper conversations about things and the medium of racing TV enables us to do that a lot better and the medium of print journalism enables us to do that a lot better and I find that that suits me particularly um, so that's not a comment on anyone else or anyone else's work I'm just talking about me and what I find stimulating because there's no point in doing a job I think unless you're actually finding it stimulating and getting well that's not right um, for me there is no point in doing a job unless there is um, you're getting something stimulating out of it that it's actually something that you are engaged with and enjoying okay no just an assumption but i'm guessing in those early days you needed real metal and determination because it was a fairly male dominated environment you found yourself in mm. uh yes it was uh and it could be quite unfriendly at times i think um and there's certainly some instances that I would class as unpleasant. Um, so yeah, I suppose I probably I probably did. Um, it helps when that you're young, because uh, you know you you keep driving forward anyway. And you know, as you get older, I think you look back and you think, would I have been able to do that now? Um, 
at the same time as you get older you get more experience and a wider view on things but yeah there have been times when it's been really quite difficult um and uh yeah uh it's been yeah there ha it has it has been difficult at times right well you've come out the other side of that obviously experienced personally within it for a long time now um, so it's very established, and I, I assume you don't have a problem sort of selling your selling your work. But I've read that you said that free content results in something being undervalued. Uh. Um, that's un un undoubtedly true for somebody like you. But where does somebody that wants to be like you? I mean, do they refuse to do something for free to to show their talents or? I'm. I think it's important. I mean, the, I'm, as I said, I'm a freelancer. And I think too many people put the emphasis on the first syllable, and I think it's part of the solidarity of uh, this profession that it is beholden on those of us who can charge to charge, actually, because um, this job requires some expertise. It uh, requires ability and. Uh, work hard work and it should be remunerated accordingly and that should mean that when you move into being able to be paid for your work that that is the kind of, of reward that you should expect. Um, this is in, against the backdrop of um, you know, in, increasingly, you know, free content it used to be free content, I'm not sure what, what free content is these days, I mean quite often what appears to be free content is actually paid for in some kind of way um, so I should put that caveat in um, but yeah when you when you're starting out you you've I mean I when I started out as I said I did work experience so I did work experience for for four months I did a um, four months at the sporting life um, and um, I essentially got paid expenses I think I got 50 quid a week I think I did um, and maybe some expenses at the top I can't remember it's such a long time ago but it certainly wasn't a living wage um, so I had to finance myself to to do that um, and then I worked for a news agency called race news and again um, I, I lived in Bedford at the time and my total salary uh, was um, if I'd have if I'd have had to I mean we meant to start work at half past nine had I got into half past nine my rail fare for the year would have been more than my total salary so you know when you're starting off you're um, you're having to make some financial sacrifices, some financial judgments. I mean, I got into debt early on in 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 my career, and was able to happily get out of it fairly quickly once I started working for the Evening Standard. Um, I think it's financially, young people are in a much more difficult situation now. They'll have racked up a lot more debt while they've been at university, so it's much more challenging. Um, and obviously the cost of living at the moment is going up massively. So I think that's a really difficult environment for them to be trying to get on. And as you point out at the start, people will be trying to get some work experience and working for free. Or, um, and increasingly you have internships, don't you, which are essentially, you know, the risk of those is that they're just cheap workforce. Um, so yeah, I, th I think people should always be, you need to get a foot in the door but you also need to be aware that you're you're doing work. You're you should be paid for that work, and the more valuable you become, the more you should value yourself and be paid accordingly. Um, 
but you know I and I, I and I think the best way to do that tends to be to unionize Take notice, Ben. <laughs> um, so we're coming to the end now. But if you were you were starting out now, would your ambition for your, I'm assuming your main job, income wise, is TV. But I don't know. I'm assuming that would would that be your ambition to be a TV presenter or what aspect? I don't think of myself as a TV presenter. If I'm honest, um, I feel like I'm. You know, this probably sounds quite poncy, but I think I'm a journalist who works in television and print media or online media as it would be these times I, I, primarily I think of myself as a journalist um, that obviously involves presenting, tele some presenting television it also involves interviewing um, it involves writing I don't really sort of think of myself that way and I I mean it, I, I probably enjoy writing more than I do television I do enjoy television but um, I like the fact that I've got I do lots of different things within my job um, and is TV presenting my set my main main job just about but it's it's I've got quite a varied portfolio which it took me a long time to build up and it I work very hard to do so um, and I, I did want lots of different strings to my bow you know things that I could do and I, I did that quite quite deliberately so I like that variety of, of, of things okay and finally what does the future you hope for professionally look like me mm. for me mm. um, I, I as I said earlier I don't really think about it I don't I genuinely don't I um, you know right from the very start when I was at university doing English I all I knew was that I didn't want to just go back home I had a taste of the independent life and I just wanted to keep going so I wrote and got some work experience from the sporting life and tumbled from one thing into another, from the sporting life into being the correspondent of the Evening Standard, being a columnist for the Times, in at the, the original At The Races startup team, racing TV, you know, a bit of Channel 4 and, and, and BBC. But, you know, these one thing kind of led to another, really. I didn't ever really start... The only time I ever stopped and tried to be strategic about it was when I, as I said, this would be about eight years ago, not ten years ago now, maybe... I strategically, deliberately decided to take a step back and make sure that I had a wide range of things that I could do because I was too used to lots of them going wrong. <laughs> and if you've only got three and two of them suddenly disappear, then you've only got one and you're in trouble. Whereas if you've got lots of different things in your portfolio, there's lots of different things that you can do. So I've got a totally open mind about what I will do next and I haven't got any specific ambition. Brilliant. Well, we'll all be watching intently, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon.